0: Welcome to The Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face.
1: Chris, you are in the UK, I am in the USA, neither of us is, is, is in Canada, as we were live together a couple weeks ago, but you are, you describe in your most recent letter or map, aka as maps, that it's as if the whole country, the UK, is waiting for test results from the doctor because we have, <laughs> bre- Brexit is about to kill the second prime ministership, or it looks like, it looks like it, I mean, Theresa May won her no confidence vote, but she will... She said, "Not run again." And so David Cameron supported Brexit, or, or no, was against Brexit, and it passed. So he left. Now she takes over for Cameron, and she can't get it passed. You're <laughs> just,
2: you're, you're, you're you're so cute when you're trying to understand Brexit.
1: I I, 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 I it's, I'm just like this thing is just like this. Is, it's like Donald Trump. It kills everything it touches.
2: But it's, you know, and I think we've talked about this before, um, it is like Donald Trump in that it is it is always in the public mind and, and the public conversation. I mean, it's so hard to be, I was on a train yesterday from Oxford uh, back to London, I was doing some teaching and uh, just chatting to the woman next to me who, it happens, works in the government for the... Uh, the Ministry of Brexit. So there was a whole government department that was created to work out. You know, uh, there there was so much involved in taking a country out of a supranational. Uh, a super yeah, national right. body like this, and, 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 so I can't take a I can't take a train, I can't take a taxi, and then the taxi ride home. We're talking about Brexit, and, and, and a lot of taxi drivers are pro Brexit, which is really interesting. So talking about, you know, why they voted that way, and it's all the answer is always about immigration. I mean, the, anyway,
1: now the taxi drivers are in London. Are they non-immigrants often? Well,
2: it uh, variety. You know, I don't have statistics. It'd be interesting to see the statistics. Uh, there's a lot of um, of non-immigrant uh, sort of British national taxi drivers as well. And, you know, so it's interesting because, uh, you know, we... Uh, where do I want to go with this? It, it, it's interesting because um, from, you know, his perspective is about... And, and it really reflects where as uh, the UK was in 2015 and 2016 uh, on the migration issue where at, at that time if you remember there were about a million uh, refugees and asylum seekers from the the war in Iraq and Syria who had kind of poured into Turkey into refugee camps there and then when those overflowed then they poured their way into into the EU and a lot of them made their way to France, Germany and 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 some to to the UK. And in that climate there was a a real anxiety, which you know, the, the pro-Brexit campaigners amped up, that uh, focused upon the sense of, look, we're losing our sovereignty here. I mean, how can we be a country if we have uh, no authority over who we let into our country? And, and that really became, I think, for a lot of people, the issue that they were voting on, or the idea, the fear that they were voting on, it was not not the economic arguments. It was the it was the the cultural and and the community arguments about does being a part of this community mean that we have no power to say who the members of our community are, and you know it also relates to sort of you know the 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 phenomenon of fake news which really entered into public lexicon sort of you know around what was happening in Europe at that time and around what was happening in the US with 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 Trump's election because that narrative that we have no control over our borders it's a- to reality i mean if you look at what governments in the EU and policymakers were, were trying to do it certainly wasn't to uh welcome so many people into the block that uh that member states lose control of their identity it was much more a case of uh you know letting in as few um asylum seekers and refugees as possible while still uh, sort of staying true to their international and european commitments humanitarian commitments and law and things like that so you know, on the one hand, there was a reality of a really difficult balancing act between you know national sovereignty concerns and uh, I guess the humanitarian, the urgent humanitarian need. Uh, but at the street level, it it turned into this this um, you know caricature of a debate between you know either either we all need to sort of sacrifice everything we own to save the world and save the world's ills, or um, or we have to go entirely the other direction and, and put up these massive walls. And and the reality, the messy reality is always somewhere in the middle. Um, and and what was extraordinary in the Brexit debate is no one was engaging the messy reality. Everyone was engaging these wild stereotypes on one side or the other. And and now that sort of the country is grappling with, well, how do we do this? The the how do we do it, which is sort of Theresa May's thankless job, is, is somewhere in the middle in that messy reality. And no one likes what it looks like.
1: Yeah, this is where I think like referendums like that are a complete cop out and a representative democracy, right? Like what person is informed enough on on the, on the all the issues involved in Brexit to make an educated vote? I mean, like it, it was nobody. Wasn't the biggest Google search after the election? What does Brexit do? What does Brexit mean? Like in the UK? Like, <laughs> uh, I mean
2: after the election but I mean uh, last week right when when um, I'm trying to think what the what the event was there was some some big news event last week that had uh, important consequences for oh you might have to edit that out but you know not just after the election in 2016 but you know last week you know at every time there is some big brexit related headline in this country the top Google search is what is brexit and, and what's really interesting so, – you know, so as I say, I was on this train, train ride yesterday back to London and this woman who works in the ministry of Brexit. And so her analysis is that, look, the big corporations, they're, they've got a handle on this, right? They've got, they've got plans in place for what do we do if there's a hard Brexit? What do we do if there's a soft Brexit? Whatever, whatever these things mean, they've got a plan in place for every scenario it's the you know it's the mom and pop shops it's the small and medium businesses who are just completely unprepared i mean what what this means is that there's going to be a whole new set of rules about how we import stuff that we sell or export stuff that we sell or you know how i hire this person or that person that you know they barely understand to begin with and suddenly they're going to have to learn a whole new business environment and those is, is, are the people it, who are
1: in the United really States, a suffer. lot of people are saying that, like the tech companies, the big tech companies are actually going to welcome regulation in light of all the mm-hmm. fake news stuff and the and meddling and stuff because it, it advantages them over startups. Like it, same thing, right? Like big corporations like the regulations very often because they can stay on top of them, right? And it's 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 mm-hmm. built it's it, it's a it's a sort of hidden form of anti-competitiveness, right? So mm-hmm. you so you it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter; they'll make money no matter what. But, but you know, the, again, the startup, you know the, the the person, the, the, the small entrepreneur, the mom and pop, they're the ones that will be sucked up. Uh, hmm. Yeah. So it's just great. Because that's really
2: interesting. Yeah. Regulatory it, complexity is an entry barrier for a lot of businesses. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It is. It, it, it's, it, huh. And it's just like, this is like you, you, you kind of, uh, if you're the big corporation, you're always betting on red and black. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you're going right. to win either way.
2: So, you know, but so my last uh, my last letter, my last map, you know, what I find really interesting is how, you know, we live in a moment where there are there are just a ton of big searching, complex questions in society, like, you know, about how democracy works and and if democracy is still working. And, you know, sitting in the taxi yesterday, coming home, uh, talking to this person who had voted for Brexit and him saying that that for him and a lot of his buddies it was all about the migration question and and that really for me has become a kind of a, a touchstone that migration seems to be the the issue that is clarifying for for so many people about um you know are are we about windows or walls uh are we about you know globalization or nationalism um are we about, you know, and on and on and on. It, it seems that migration is kind of like the gateway drug <laughs> yeah. for people to be involved in these larger questions today.
1: And it's funny because you quote yourself saying that everything. Do I do that basic, now? Oh, my God. That's yeah. You say that, you said that social media, <laughs> these things, these technological things, you should let everything break. Let social media run amok. Everything it breaks needed fixing. It's funny because. I you said that on a CBC radio interview with Anna Marie Tremonti on the current. I actually listened to that before the f- first time we ever talked. That was mm. gra- I I really I thought it was a great interview. And I I remember I was struck by you saying that. I thought that was pretty interesting. That that basically and part of the context I remember in that in that interview is you were saying like look, first of all, our regulatory stuff is so far be- behind the technology anyway that we're not going to catch up anyway. Like our attempts mm. to and you mm. saw that with the senators interviewing Mark, United States senators interviewing Mark Zuckerberg, saying, and you mm. make you do all this stuff free of charge. How do you make revenue? And Zuckerberg's mm. like, "Um, we sell ads." <laughs> it's, you know, like so. This, these are the geniuses that would be tasked with coming up with regulatory policy. To you know, mm. so but you say that that basically that the that that the, the diagnostically. You say in the start that the the cracks in democracy that migration are is a key thing. Like, you use the term interestingly, the plural democratic kind of bargain, which is intriguing because you, you know if if we want to live in liberal multicultural societies, right, diverse mm-hmm. societies where there's no sort of uh, normative, you know, religious ethos, there's not it's not one ethnic kind of nation thing. If we if we want to really live in that kind of society, that that involves a lot of sort of shared mutual understanding rights but also a sort of sense of civic virtues that value that kind of diversity you know at least at, at some level mm-hmm. And you, know, you don't have to like every practice of every group in in but you, but you you get there's some dignity that they've got just as much a right to who they are you know as as we do and in that kind of pact it, you seem to elude to the fact that it, it, if there's this much anxiety about migration patterns maybe we don't want to be the kind of societies we're saying we want to necessarily be. Like that, maybe the mm-hmm. pluralistic democratic thing is actually not where all of our commitments and and moral sentiments are.
2: It's really so. As you talk about that, I I actually recall a a, a podcast that you recorded. Uh, at uh, at our Toronto base camp in November, and I and it was a great set of podcasts. By the way, I loved listening to them, and it really took me back into that room. But uh, I can't remember who it was. It might have been, um, it might have been Ben Rousewell. Uh, and 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 he was talking about one of the interesting things that's going on in Canada right now is a quite deliberate national project to um to to sort of strongly reinforce multiculturalism yeah it was ben as, as yeah i remember the, yeah, yeah. yeah you remember yeah, that I remember, conversation yeah. Yeah. and and I, and I thought that was interesting because you know as as he said that and and as you're talking about these choices that we make as a society that 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 is a quite deliberate project that's underway right now and 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 probably a project that you know if if we want to um, maintain uh, you know an adherence to or even a celebration of pluralism at a moment where uh, the technologies and the capacities to be splitist are uh, are are getting stronger, then it is going to take that kind of deliberate exercise about creating a a a culture of of uh, of enthusiasm for for difference that that we can't. That, that it's, I mean, it's, that it's kind of naive and idealistic to assume that people just naturally end up there, that, that no, it's actually a, a nation-building project in itself to, to build that kind of sort of post-national identity. And, and it's very interesting to think about that and then ask oneself, if, if that's what it takes, um, you know, how generalizable is that, you know, quote-unquote Canadian model because you know as i th- sort of look around europe um history weighs so heavily upon the politics of migration that it's it it, it i think it's really difficult to create a, a strong commitment to um to some sort of sense of post national identity uh, like, okay, when, like you say, the, when
1: you say when you say history goes towards the politics of migration, what do you like? Do you mean tribal sort of like?
2: It, 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 it's it's more than tribal. So let, let me think. So and and I'm not I'm not uh, a brilliant historian of sort of you know every European country, but you know take Hungary for example, right? So so
1: oh sure uh, yeah you
2: know you know Viktor Orbán and the Hungarian they've gotten a lot of you know justifiably. Um, Heat opprobrium from the rest of the EU about their policies towards migrants. I mean, um, in 2015 they're putting up razor fences, they're using water cannons and tear gas to push people away from the border. Um, that was very popular within Hungary. And, and what's, you know think about Hungary's history, uh, you know Soviet satellite, so living under Soviet communism, uh, before that, part of the austro-Hungarian Empire. So, you know, in both of those experiences of empire, basically the whole of the 19th and most of the 20th century, uh, Hungarian people are second class citizens essentially within their society. Uh, and so there, there must have been, I'm just imagining here, I'm speaking on behalf of our Hungarian friends, but I, I can imagine there must have been a kind of euphoria and enthusiasm sort of post-1989 and the wall coming down to, to finally just being able to uh, celebrate the, our national identity, Hungarian. And 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 to the extent that that was a kind of new thing and a hard-won thing uh, among a people, I can understand that there would be a, a knee-jerk fear or anxiety about diluting, you know, and, and that's probably, you know, a, a loaded way to describe it, but a way that a lot of people would hear and, and, and nod their heads with, diluting that sense of identity.
1: I, I feel like world history goes in that trend. I mean, the the, the sort of... Pluralistic, relatively pluralistic society existing in comedy, you know, and 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 harmony. I mean, those are rare, right? I mean, that that's not the norm, right? I mean, and part of it's evolutionary, right? I mean, we tribalism is an evolutionary advantage, right? It helps you, you know. What does Jonathan Haidt talk about in the Righteous Mind? Morality binds, Mm. Mm. and it blinds. It binds people Mm. together, and also blinds you to other ways of seeing and doing. And so, I think Mm. that liberal society is is a is a Liberal pluralistic kind of multiculturalism—that's that's not the norm in world history.
2: Yeah, so I think I think you know probably you know pluralism is fighting you know an uphill battle against at least three things, right? One, one is—and I don't know much about the, kind of the evolutionary psychology and sociology of tribalism and stuff like that—but but, but I, I hear that argument. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the counter argument is that you know tribes have been sort of taking over other tribes and and enlarging the notion of tribe. Sort of ever since there's been tribes, so it's it's probably not that simple. But but I, I think that one there is this kind of tribalism argument. Um, I think two, yeah, fighting uphill against history because there is no world history, right? We've all got our own histories, and migration brings those histories together. And you know, it kind of I, I, you know, we wish away the complication of us all bringing our own history books to the same community, you know, at our peril, I think. So So, two, there's history. And then I think third, probably the big uphill battle is just, you know, forget about social media and fake news. Uh, you know, the way that we talked about, uh, that we talk about migration and migrants in society, I think kind of predisposes us to um, be very receptive to certain narratives, like narratives of charity and narratives of fear, it seems like migrants are either um, you know this passive, helpless creature or they are this you know terrorist evil doer and and neither one of those two caricatures uh, recognizes sort of their full and rich and complex humanity and the story that leads them to become migrants uh, there 's a great book by uh, my co author on my last book. Uh, Ian Golden, and, and he he uh, he edited a volume called "Exceptional People," and basically talking about why people migrate, and and there is so much to uh, to explore and understand about the people who you know do choose to uproot themselves and you know join a migrant caravan or get on a boat or get on a plane um, that that largely gets you know those voices get ignored through a lot of the discourse that we have in, in the big uh, recipient countries and, and to the extent that it is, it just makes it easier, whether you're kind of pro or against, to, to care to caricaturize that for whatever political purposes you've got.
1: Yeah, I think I might mean, have brought this up in a previous episode. I'm not sure but i I listen to this podcast called Why Theory and fantastic. Two guys who are Philosophers and do a lot of film studies and stuff, and they uh, they actually had them on my give and take podcast. They're amazing, but they were talking about Hegel and Hegel's understanding of dialectic. They were like, you know, and, and how the truth is in contradiction. And so he they said, look at this sort of you know in America the right wing kind of approach to immigration. They're like, well, the immigrant is one of two things. He's either Speedy Gonzalez, who's going to steal all the construction jobs and work two jobs at once. Or he's lazy but he's also lazy and shiftless and he's going to be a criminal and, and a degenerate <laughs> and so and they said the Kantian way would be, well this can't both be true you know uh, you know one of the you know this is a false error and said so, no the Hegel Galeons say would just say yes yeah, that's true the immigrant is uh, industrious and shiftless just like everybody you know we're all at certain moments industrious and certain moments shiftless right we're all we're all all of these things mm. and, and they were saying that when you don't or the same thing look at Nazi propaganda. Well the Jew is dirty and and, and 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 awful and you know the Jew is awful you know and you don't want to be around them then the Jew is also charming and slick and he'll steal your woman well how could you know so the, they're saying that person that we don't let be a complexity with contradiction feminists yeah if, have if, 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 if realized this right the madonna whore complex a woman mm-hmm. can either be maternal or sexual but can't be so the minute we allow mm-hmm. somebody not to be full of contradictions and tensions, they're the mm-hmm. marginal they're marginalized them we have a need to marginalize mm-hmm. them because everybody else gets mm-hmm. to be Right. A whole bunch of things, right? Like right. at, at once, right. and so that, so I I when you pick up on that narrative, it's sort of like okay, now we're going to marginalize these people because we're going to either let them be objects of charity or these big problems. We don't let them be just human.
2: Huh. So you've got to put that in the show notes because I want to go and read that now. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a podcast.
1: I will put I will put the okay. link. I'll put the link mm. to the y paper. It's fantastic. It, I mean, mm. maybe the holidays we can talk about. They did one on Christmas movies and dialectics and Christmas movies. The best. Ugh, it's amazing. <laughs>
2: And so it's really so you combine that with the the political opportunity that it represents, right? That um, in twenty fifteen, uh, you know, let's call it populist campaigns, really, really across these pluralistic, democratic, sort of advanced democracies, whatever we like to call ourselves, um, it was discovered kind of again and again and again that we can we can use these simplifications of people. The these uh, we can use these simplifications of people as scapegoats to create fear and anxiety that can drive uh, masses of people to support uh, our bid for power, yeah. yeah, and 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 our bid for leadership, and 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 so it's interesting that you know on the one hand migration is this fact of life. I mean, it's it's a fact of human of of the human species that 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 we migrate, and it's not going to stop. Uh, we've built societies that work that reality into our economy and into our society and and into our politics, but at the same time we have built a powerful fragility into our society and into our politics because we we you know the the work of working the other into the us is so incomplete that you know it, it and and so here's where my where my just understanding of history fails. It'd be interesting to understand. So how often has this been being done, right? The scapegoating of the migrant, the the portrayal of the migrant as the demon, in order to catapult or or to kind of you know put some nitro into a bid for power. Because we talk about it now as if it's it's this new thing. But of course, as, as you know, as you refer back to uh, the Jewish experience, you know, sort of over over centuries, and and I imagine that if I just think of a broader scope of history, this has been one of the ongoing narratives throughout human. Yeah.
1: in my immigration okay. in America, I mean, that's the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it, 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 there's this hostility, the fear of the other. Yeah. It, you know, this until somebody gets assimilated somehow, you know, and, and even that language says is, is sort of politicized, right? Like, hmm. you know, it, the the language of assimilation is looked at as sort of cultural eradication you know like well it's it's you know this this whole this academic debate is is America really a melting pot or more like a tossed salad the melting pot is hegemonic <laughs> as as a as a sort of metaphor hmm. uh, yeah I mean these things are also precarious right I mean like just even the way we talk about them our language can be so loaded right and and somebody says melting pot and, and then it, 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 some people think that that has major racial sort of undertones, you know, mm. uh, it, it, it may, and sometimes it might, but uh, yeah, just complicated. And,
2: and so I think you know the question becomes, you know, what I guess what growth is going to happen, right? Or is growth going to happen? You know, here in this country, the UK, you know, whatever the whatever sort of falls out of Brexit, whether it actually happens, doesn't happen, the form of it, is there going to be some kind of growth? in the, the quality or complexity of how uh, this political community here thinks about the, uh, the ever-present role of migrants and, and the process by which those who are seen as the other become part of the us, part of the community, so that uh, one way or the other there is just a, a sense of, of, I suppose, cultural progress.
1: In, well, I'll tell you what's going to happen here. We're making yeah. America, what's going to happen there? We're making America great again over here, dude. That's uh, what's uh, happening uh, over uh, on this side. Of, uh, on this side of the. Uh, the, Are, you the, the Are you though? Are you though? I mean, the oh, last look. Look, I mean, look at Twitter. Look at Trump's Twitter feed. That's all I need to know. America's coming great. Everything is great. Stock market's great, except when it's not. Uh, I have fifty percent uh, polling popularity, except it's only the outlying Rasmussen poll. I mean, just look at all. I need is Trump's Twitter feed to tell me we're making America great over here.
2: Did you did you see there was a recent story about the Trump administration, uh, sort of looking at the immigration status of Vietnamese people? From- yeah, 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 NBA, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, insane! It's insane. So, so what's the story there? Uh, yeah, they're just like basically people that are protected, like refugee, political, right, refugees. from the time of the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, we're looking at sending them back.
2: I mean, this is just like – I mean – it What does it, that have to do with national security
1: is the thing, right? Well, it's interesting. The wall. We need the wall. The wall will be so great. But, you know, I mean, most uh, people that are undocumented here overstay visas. I mean, that's how – the vast majority – of it's not people coming from the southern hemisphere over through Mexico. That's just not mm-hmm. – that's not the, the initial and, and no terror – I mean, the State Department has said terrorists aren't coming through like the southern border, but, but – the thing is, you can't get people angry at overstayed visas and automation, right? When, they, when, when, when the, their economy is changing and if they're displaced by that, like, all right, yeah, you know, it's automation stuff, a lot of, you know, and companies, their value goes up with automation. They, they actually, w- employing less people, you know, in techn- technological advance actually makes the company worth more very often. That and people overstaying their visas, no one's going to go to a rally for that. But when you say there's, you know, bad mm. people, really bad hombres coming over the border to take mm. your jobs, mm. to you know, like, yeah, that is emotionally powerful, you know, and, well, then, and so that's what you—it's mm. a solution. It's a—it's it's mm. a, a—it's a solution looking for a problem.
2: So you know, and this goes to kind of your your uh, Hegelian critique on you know, it it is possible because you know the migrants are presented not as people full of contradictions, but as um, these, these sort of simple shadows of people, right? Bad hombres. Right? Well, what, what is that? I mean... <laughs> <you
1: know. laughs> oh, and, and- like a lot of people that got <laughs> indicted by Robert Mueller. Bad embrace. Bad embrace.
2: That's good. Now it's now it's clearer for
1: me. By the way, I would be so nervous. It's funny, Trump can't get somebody to even become chief of staff. And you know, a practical consideration of that is like, okay, you're making what hundred hundred thousand dollars? Maybe chief. It's a government job. I mean, you're not making tons of money, and you're going to have to hire a white shoe DC lawyer just to work there. Because of these investigations, and who knows what obstruction of justice you're witnessing on a daily basis. I mean, it's just tough if you want to go into government service that it comes with a price tag of of legal fees that might exceed your salary.
2: Plus, you know, I'm sure a lot of these people, they don't have spotless backgrounds, and so they're probably reluctant to put themselves in the line of fire where somebody needs to then look for leverage points against them in order to flip them so that they talk about what you really want to talk about. And they've got, and everybody's got lots. It seems like everybody in that orbit has a lot of leverage points.
1: I would be worried if I were anyone that, cause you know what? Mueller ran the FBI, dude. You know what? What's the FBI saying? They always get their man. That guy, I mean Mueller, you know, Princeton grad, was wounded in Vietnam. Here's one of these like sort of old school principled Americans. That guy, you know, if there's if there's wrongdoing, he's going to find it, dude. I mean, I, I if I were Trump, I'd resign. I'd get out. Hmm. Well, yeah,
2: I'm sure. Well, well let's hmm.
1: Let, there there's a question
2: I want to ask you, which is me or
1: me or President Trump. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, I every now and then I get into an argument with uh with Donald Trump in, you know, in, in on on the bus or my bedroom or something and I get so and and I try to stop because you could never have you just can't argue with someone who can't hold an argument, but no, it's you know, I wonder so going back to you mentioned that I guess it was about a year ago. It was actually the beginning of 2018 when I was on The Current with uh, Anna Maria Tremonti. And, and and I made this, you know, at, at the time I I was just trying to be, you know, provocative when I said that, you know, this social media stuff. And it was sort of in the context of, uh, you know, Zuckerberg was, you know, they're starting to haul his ass before Congress and all this kind of stuff. And and I just decided to take the contrary contrarian view to say, no, you know what, let's just let it run amok because everything it breaks needed fixing and it it one of those statements that it felt true i didn't really know why it it might be true but what felt true is that if if somehow you know the the empowerment of many divisive voices breaks society then there was some deeper fragility in society and and i think that you know migration is Again, like I say, kind of like the gateway drug that gets people to express express in a very it, it seems like a very emotional, very visceral way whether whether I'm good or I'm not good. I'm, I'm 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 really unhappy. But if if it is the gateway drug, or if it is sort of the the canary in the coal mine, what do you think are might be some of the deeper pathologies or or the deeper flaws in our democracy that are that are being you know bundled up. Into that reaction to migrants,
1: yeah. I, when I remember when I listened to that that interview the first time, I thought I, I was kind of sympathetic to your argument, and I thought, well, here's the thing: like I, I have a friend, uh, Mike McCarg who does a podcast. I mean, it gets like it's probably got like a million downloads a month or something. It's called The Liturgist with a couple other guys who does it. But they did an episode on fake news, and he did a really basic thing on how you know a real news story on the internet. It, was, it seems like hmm. an name but it was basic stuff. Like, is it sourced? When is it dated? Da-da-da. Like, was it... And, and just basically knowing the sort of basic ideological framework of of places you read. And he reads very widely, and, and you know, like, right, left, and center. And I thought... This is so basic, but part of what the fake news crisis stuff and social media crisis exposes is, you know, the sense of like this gets drilled to you in US schooling and civics. Like, we need an ed- educated citizenry for the democracy to work, right? People that are educated, discerning, thinking. So the fact that you can, troll farms can just throw up all these bullshit stories and people just hook, line, and sinker, t- you know, take it in. Hmm. Like the fact, it might be the fact that show the fact that like we don 't have the kind of citizenry we need in a liberal democracy hmm. to discerningly weed through things and make informed decisions about the kind of representative choices we want to make
2: so I had on that so I had really fascinating i what i hope is the first of many really fascinating conversations uh with this uh, turkish woman gulen kavas she's she 's a journalist she 's the chief editor of um uh, a fact-checking platform in, in Turkey called te.org. And uh, she, she earlier this year, she compiled really the first proper database of of fake news stories that are out there in social media that pertain specifically to migrants and refugees. So so that was why I was, I, I was kind of exploring this particular issue around migration, and so that's why I reached out to her. But she, she said something I thought was just brilliant. I um, kind of sum up, what she does and what her organization does and and the challenge of it and and this question of you know do we have the citizenry she needs, but the way she the way she summarized it is this: she says uh, telling a lie is quick and easy. telling that a lie is a lie, which is basically her work, is slow and difficult, but telling people that a lie is a lie is, and her word was quixotic like it is just it, it is almost impossible to tell people that a lie is a lie because.
1: And qu- qu- quixotic, we're talking about Don Quixote. We're
2: talking, yeah. To it, it, dream that,
1: <laughs> the impossible dream. Hmm.
2: I, I'm not even sure that's how you say that word. I use it so rarely. One of those words that you read, but when do you when yeah. do you find the opportunity to put it into like you know. Polite conversation with people.
1: In other words, you are pointing your lance at windmills or whatever. <laughs> does. What was his sidekick's name? Oh shoot! What's
2: oh, ten points if you. Oh come on! it The uh, Don. Anyway,
1: the musical is Man from La Mancha, right?
2: No, now you're testing my. You're exposing my. I, I My. Don't know. My. my, my I'm, I'm a peasant man. You're.
1: Me too. I'm, you're, I'm firmly rooted in the plebeian class.
2: I need to read more of my, you know, great Spanish works. Um. But, you know, so her point that when you're, when you're fact-checking a lie, the, the, the real asymmetry is that the, what you're fighting isn't the lie, it's the false narrative, right? And it's kind of like, you know, a, a table with many, many legs. And you can cut out one of the legs, but it's irrelevant because the, the narrative is what I believe, and it's the narrative that is still true.
1: Yeah, this and is so, where Aristotle mm. is wrong in that we're not rational animals, we're more like rationalizing animals. So I I think that that mm. that what, once we know what we want to believe. This is what Jonathan Haidt says, like it, 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 that it, when we are making arguments like politically or culturally, we're not we're less like careful reason people and we're people like looking for justification for something we already want. Like it, that, it, yeah, it's exactly, incredibly exactly. emotional. So that so and I, that and that is regardless of class. Regardless of I mean, they just kind of like with with they said you know one of the things with confirmation bias oftentimes education doesn't help because you just now have more sources to confirm your biases you know so you, you kind of hmm. so i mean this is so pernicious just it's part of the human condition we are just not disinterested or neutral i mean we, we and we can't live without you can't make sense of the world without narratives, without stories, mm, mm, and so right, right. generally, once and, and once one gets dislodged, that can be really traumatic. So, oftentimes, if if this story is what's sort of helping you orient the, your way in the world, and and you know, you it's working for you. I mean, you'll fight tooth and nail to have that taken, you know, if, 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 lest it be taken away.
2: So that's a uh, so two things there. One, and I can't remember who the Republican Congressperson, Congressman or Senator was. It was in the news. You know I think just a day ago a, a journalist was asking for a reaction to the uh, the conviction of Michael Cohen and what it means and the um, uh, the congressman said well you know the Democrats are always trying to nah, nah, nah. and the journalist corrected and said well you know in this case it's not Democrats it's the uh, it's the state attorney it's the federal it's the federal Justice Department and his response was uh well you know I don't care the point is right and 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 so to your point about we're rationalizing, not rational.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ar- I think Ar- it might have been Orrin Hatch, the senator from Utah. I think he's that same thing he said. I- or at least he said, too, something similar. And he said, well, you can make uh, laws to make a crime out of anything. I mean, like, basically, he was a nihilist. <laughs> like, I, mean, was, like, I think
2: it was Orrin Hatch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right.
1: his conclusion sure. was reductio ad nihilism.
2: <laughs> but So, yeah, so that was, you know, surreal, but also... You know, I think that you've, so when you talk about narratives, and and we all need narratives to make sense of the world, I mean, I think you've also elegantly framed the question or the problem, which is, you know, given how, how strongly we need our narratives, and given that, you know, we come to social life in these pluralistic societies with a diversity of narratives, so are are we are we therefore locked into conflict or is there a way that we can sort of loosen our adherence to our own narrative enough to work in New characters and and, and, and new plots and, and new destinations in the story? I mean, is that what sort of the economic argument is? Is well if people are living in a condition of economic abundance, then they're more willing to give up the, the security of the narrative that they're holding on to? I, I mean I wonder is that what, what's, you know, the, the national project that's being attempted in Canada? Is is it about getting people to have looser narratives? I, I I'm I'm just I suppose I'm fundamentally worried about whether we're going to be able to figure out how to create uh, more inclusive stories. Right? Being
1: fundamentally worried is better than being a worried fundamentalist, which was what Mike, Mike <laughs> Pence, Mike Pence looked like sitting in that meeting with Trump and Pelosi. And- and Chuck Schumer, the guy didn't move at all. He was like, "Oh my gosh, uh, what am I going to do? Am I going to get the tuna plate for lunch or the chicken salad?" Like, I mean, he was guy was like, he was petrified. Yeah, now I think that's a good. You know, what we should talk about for our next podcast. Maybe hmm. there's a great uh, essay T.S. Eliot wrote called "Notes Toward an Understanding of Culture." When he actually looks at, it, can you what do you need? Some kind of animating spirit and storing ethos behind a culture to to hold it together and. Uh, I think, I mean, Elliot. It's a, it's an interesting piece, and again, it's something that you know, Elliot's a particular thinker, a particular point of view that you know we wouldn't have to share it. But I, I mean, I think he he raises some questions that a lot of people are raising. Is is the liberal project? Can everybody? Is it enough to have this sort of mutual agreed upon, you know, space to pursue your ends, or do or, or do we need something more emotional than that? To, to to keep mm. us together you know mm. to to create a new mm. sense of identity that mm. would encompass all the all the, uh, the 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 identities that make up the whole and i, I mean i i think mm. that is a challenging thing in a liberal society
2: especially when you have and in a postmodern moment right where yeah, sort of everything yeah. is fundamentally contestable it seems
1: yeah and i i think you know that is a challenge and you know this is and again, in the anxiety of that challenge, I think this is where populist nationalist movements scratch a certain itch, right? Because not only do they deal with your anxiety, they give you something to believe in, right? A, mm. a story that, you know, that, that's got good guys and bad guys and heroes and villains. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a simple story.
2: I, and I think that's the key word right there is it's simple. Uh, you know, one one quotation, and I think it's Heisenberg, I, I've fallen in love with it, I heard it a couple of months ago, and now I use it all the time. Um, but the idea, the statement says, not me. I abhor simplicity on this side of complexity. I crave simplicity on the other side of complexity, which is to say, you know, there is a simple solution out there, but first we've got to kind of hang with the complexity until we really understand what the, the new paradigm is where all these sort of complicated things, complicated paradoxes sort of fall away. It sounds so beautiful to me, but I think that, you know, most of us don't have the time, the energy, the confidence, the determination to hang with the not knowing and to hang with the complexity. And if there's an offer of simplicity on this side of that mountain, I think a lot of us are going to take it.
1: Yeah, I'm just—that's so what we're seeing. I, like, I I tend to be with like people like Hume on this, right? I think moral hmm. sentiment, moral moral human morality is shaped by like at, the affections, emotions. It's like it's you know it's 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 more emotional than rational, and so he thinks you know stories are very helpful. I'm trying to think like hmm. what serial dramas celebrate liberal democracy i mean yeah, i'm trying to like at uh, like his I'm, I'm homeland Other, it, like west wing <laughs> i mean what yeah west wing, yeah right west wing right okay west wing did <laughs> that's true west wing does celebrate a kind of yeah i mean do we have story popular stories that mm. are gripping and compelling on a wide scale that mm. would cultivate the kind of values that i think would you know? Would undergird the, the the pluralistic democratic project? I don't know. So I
2: ah mean, uh, uh So okay. So that's a great lead into. So we're going to need to have a podcast about what the campaign slogan, what the story or narrative for the uh, twenty twenty Democratic nomination. We did.
1: T- we did it. We did it. It's our last two uh, the two episodes ago. You said. Oh it. yeah. <laughs>
2: Remember? Remember?
1: We did it. We talked about it in the, in the hotel That's room. That's right.
2: We did talk about it. Okay, so I've laid that down on tape. Yeah, I, America the Beautiful. I, America the Beautiful. So I think that there's an example of a story that could, you know, it's it's so it's a part of the American myth, uh, but there's a story that I think could be repurposed for the present day that offers uh, an imagery and a narrative about a kind of, you know, the 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 radical inclusivity that uh America has and how that makes America distinct distinctive um and 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 yes beautiful in a way that very few other countries can can claim to be so so i think that you know th- so the other maybe you know to end on an optimistic note um you know if if we sort of all need stories the other thing is that you know humans tend to be good storytellers yeah yeah and, and and so if we if we if we can identify, you know, what the need is, is there needs to be a story that creates a a, a strong vision and enthusiasm of, of moving towards uh, a pluralistic society of of giving sort of giving lived expression to the ideal that diversity is strength then I, I'm I'm fundamentally betting on the possibility that somebody can come up with that story.
1: I, the best book I've read on that score and, and I can remember came out maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, by uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the chief mm. UK, rabbi of the UK. He wrote a book called The Dignity of Difference, which is— Brilliant book, brilliant book. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think that is one of the best— and and it's rooted in a kind of Judeo Christian understanding of difference. I mean, he, mm. he has, you know, it, I, it's fantastic. I, I can't mm. think. I'm trying to think mm. of something like that mm. that I've read in a while, and I can't. What, I can't think of anything.
2: One of the uh, one of the insights from that book that um, that I often share with people because for me it just seems so so obvious and yet so profound is that um, we only we only get to know universal values through particular experiences. Absolutely. Right? Like like charity. Well, like you, like you can't—charity is just this thing out there, but it, it's the act of charity that gives us an encounter with what charity is. Just like little acts of freedom or kindness or love give us some kind of connection with the broader concept of love. And so there's something there about what diversity offers us is the opportunity— to experience so many of of the the higher virtues uh, that are important to us, and if we can kind of get to that place where where we see these as, as opportunities to overcome some of the limitations in ourselves um, to to face some of the tests that help us to grow as individuals right and 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 to grow as as moral beings. Um, yeah, I think the, I think you're right that that's that's it. one. That's a great book. Throw it in the show notes, and 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 two, a great example that that yes, there are those kinds of stories out there. Um, we just need charismatic people to
1: be telling them. Yeah, man, a little bit of charisma goes a long, long way, uh, and a little bit of charisma without a moral compass can get you to the president of the United States. <laughs> 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 Yeah, silver-tongued devils, right? Exactly.
2: Those those exist, too. Those exist, too, because we love a good story. Well, my
1: friend, it's a pleasure, as always.
2: Scott. Until next time. Great. See you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.